some of them really suck. Yeah. So grab your drink and give your glass a clink to Broadway, Broadway Blackout. Broadway Blackout. Broadway Blackout. I am not giving away my... Rita, do you have a drink? Marianne, finish the lyric. Oh, crap. Okay. Shot. Hello, hello, it's very nice to meet you. Hello, hello. Hello. <laughs> I was trying to get the vibe. I completely understand. <laughs> I just did not know what to say. <laughs> hello, 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 hello. Welcome to Broadway <laughs> Blackout! <laughs> Would you expect anything less? Not with day drinking. Oh, man. That's, that's what this is for sure. Mm-hmm. We love the day drink, though. We do. Catch us in Disney in a few weeks, drinking four days in a row, completely blacked out from 8 a.m. to 10 p.m.? 12? How how long will we last? I mean, what? I'm beating up the mic. Oh, my God. It's not the mic's fault. (laughs) Well, welcome to Broadway Blackout. Broadway Blackout is a witty, in-depth look at some of the atrocities that have come to the Broadway stage Take a look with Marianne and Rita into stage flops that lost money, caused controversy, Ooh. and barely made it through previews. Yikes. Which, let me say, this week's show, big yikes. As you're listening, enjoy a signature cocktail in the theme of the show each week from self-proclaimed mixologist, Mary Ann. Marianne, tell us this week's drink. It is <laughs> something. <laughs> it, is <laughs> it is peach schnapps. I haven't taken a sip yet, so as you do that, I'm going to. Okay. It's peach schnapps, pineapple mango juice, cranberry, and lime seltzer. It just kind of tastes like, like, like jungle juice. I also feel like all of the flavors cancel themselves out. Yeah, they-, <laughs> <laughs> they kind of do. Yeah. Kind of funny, I was right? like, well, I don't okay. think it, it doesn't taste bad. It just feels like a, like a college ranger, you know, where everybody, like, would pour all the different alcohols and juices into a bucket, and then everyone would just drink from it. Yeah. Not anymore, I guess. Well, now, today. <laughs> oh, no, no, but no. way back in the day. Um, that's oh, what it tastes like. College. Oh, college. That was, like, three years ago for me. I, w- I was trying to make something tart that would make your lips pucker. Like, any guesses what the show is? Ooh! But it didn't work. Does it make you wanna whistle? Ooh! <laughs> I don't like that ooh. I can't whistle either, so. I can't, I can only whistle if I like suck in. But I can't whistle if I go out. That's it. I can do it both ways. We love a versatile mama. <laughs> so this week's show is the 1964 flop. <laughs> Anyone can, can whistle, whistle by the incomparable Stephen Sondheim. Oh, Daddy Sondheim. Happy B-Day. Happy B-Day. Oh, Cheers to you, you, sir. Clink. Thank you for changing the face of musical theater in the late 20th century. Yeah, I just read an article actually on Facebook um, about how Stephen Sondheim is 
like the most genius musical theater writer out there at the moment mm -hmm. and how he has been for the past you know 50. 30 40 50 years how he yeah. has changed the face of musical theater as we know it for the better and why musicals now on broadway and musicals that are like coming to broadway uh have so much influence mm -hmm. are influenced by him yeah unless it's something like spongebob don't hate. I like Spongebob. I, I'm not hating. I'm just saying. You never know. Maybe one or two of those songs, those uh, those particular writers could have been like, right there. This is the Sondheim Bob in the show. Because Spongebob, every single song was written by somebody different. Which definitely is why it didn't last long. But <laughs> you never know. Maybe Brendan Erie or Sarah Bareilles, who are two people who wrote some of the songs, were like, I like that little tangent you just went on. Thanks so much. <laughs> so this month is not only Music in Our Schools Month, yeah, but also Stephen Sondheim's birthday month. You know, it's also another pretty popular, pretty famous composer's birthday. But Marianne and I <laughs> happen to be pretty biased. <laughs> I feel like it's not important when you're a musical theater person you typically stand one or the other yeah yeah you appreciate them both but you typically yeah. favor one over the other yeah we happen to favor Stephen Sondheim for good reason yeah 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 yeah, yeah. not that there is a reason that there is an article written about Stephen Sondheim and not about the other yeah um Stephen Sondheim's also super savage by the way oh yeah uh, did you ever read the article that he wrote in response to... There was an article about Porgy and Bess. The Gershwin's Porgy and Bess, yeah, as they I called it. Yeah, I was going to say, did, did Sondheim have anything to do with the revival of Porgy and Bess? Absolutely not. Oh, okay. But he just had a real problem with how they were publicizing it and to a fact where he, he wrote something to the effect of... And this was like an open letter to them. Something to the effect of... You're calling it the Gershwins, Porgy and Bess, but you're completely ignoring the book writer and anyone else that had any influence on the show. It wasn't just their show. Like, savage. I love it. I know. So Maybe I'll give you the link and you can link it in the... Uh, oh, that's a great idea. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Oh my gosh. I would love... And I'll, you know what? I'll also link that um, whole article about how Stephen Sondheim is like... Musical theater genius. Yeah. The best musical theater writer of our time. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Dope. So uh, tell us about Anyone Can Whistle, Marianne. Okay. Anyone can whistle. Except for me. Easy. Anyone Can Whistle is an absurdist social satire that tells the story of a corrupt mayoress who fakes a miracle to revitalize her bankrupt town through the resulting pilgrim trade, and the ill-fated romance between the rational nurse out to expose the fraud and the easygoing doctor who is determined to enjoy the chaos that it brings. Music and lyrics were by Stephen Sondheim, who else? And the book was by Arthur Lawrence. Wherever we go, whatever we do, we're gonna go through it together. Oh, 
When you say absurdist, <laughs> you really mean absurdist. I mean, I, I don't think anybody got it. And before we started recording, Rita and I were both saying how ab- absurdist to a point where it's not easy to follow. Oh, no, not at all. I had heard of Anyone Can Whistle, obviously, because it's, you know, a huge sometimes show, and, well, I wouldn't say huge, but it's one of, you know, sometimes first shows. One of his most infamous shows. Yeah, one of his most, yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I've sang some songs for, uh, from, from the show, uh, everybody says don't, everybody says don't, everybody says, it's such a good song. Yeah. But a lot of the songs from this musical are, are popular, they're saying a lot of cabarets and reviews, and Um, like standalone songs for auditions and everything but I never really knew what the show was about and I still don't know what the show is about (laughs) it's like cats which I fell asleep in yeah yeah and woke up crying we don't know why because it's cats cats yeah but no seriously like (laughs) uh, after all the research I have done I still don't know if I have the best grasp of what the show is about because it's very confusing and a three act musical is like only a little unheard of. You have other shows that, that do that as well. But for a Stephen Sondheim show. Yeah. Yeah. And like, typically, you're going to be like, Sondheim is a genius. And he has written so many musicals that some of them have to flop. But I don't know. This feels feels more, more than a flop. Yeah. You know, we've said it in past podcasts. The, the community theater Marianne, Marianne and I go to, um, th- we do a lot of obscure shows there. Um, not so well-known shows, all that jazz. But um, this is a show that I don't even think our theater would try and tackle. I've never heard of any theater doing it. The only versions that anybody else has done, I feel like, is City Center Encores and City Hall. Yeah. Like professional, professional productions with yeah. big names. Yeah. I was just looking up three act musicals. I don't even think some of these are correct. Apple Tree is 100% a three act musical. The Most Happy Fella? I wonder if it was three act and then revised two. Uh, there's a musical called Three. Somebody said Peter Pan. No, no, Nanette, which. The whole show is based on threes, so I could see that. Right. Uh, Contact, which was not. Somebody said Cinderella. <laughs> <laughs> and Three Penny Opera, which I, I was going to say, I thought Three Penny Opera was a three-act musical. I'll tell you in a second. Waiting and waiting. Waiting through the window. I was singing a different musical, but it's completely okay. The one I was singing. Oh, was- it is three. Actually, the one you were singing was also a Tony Award winner, but the one I was singing was a Tony Award winner. It won Best Tony Award, I want to say, in 2018. If you can guess the musical, I will chug this entire drink right here, right now. Is it Bands Visit? Yeah! Yay! (laughs) Chug it. Screw me. (laughs) You don't have to. It's okay. We have to get through the pot. Oh, okay. All right. Go ahead. Okay. All right. (laughs) 2019 was. Who won? Hades uh, Town. Oh, Hades Town. Way down, Hades Town. Way down in the ground. Amber Gray. I want to be Amber Gray when I grow up. Oh my gosh, same. Yeah. But 
Anyone can whistle. <laughs> Amber Gray, let us know if you've ever starred in a production of Anyone Can Whistle. I would love to see it. Who or, did she play? The mayoress. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, she couldn't play Faye. No. <laughs> <laughs> nah. No offense. No, you're... <laughs> you're not vibing with that part. No, that's okay. Yeah, yeah. Lawrence and Sondheim have a past. They did West Side Story together. They did Gypsy together. We did Gypsy together. We did do Gypsy together. Oh my God. You can find it on YouTube. And then a few years before, I think it was 62, I actually didn't look it up. Sondheim wrote music and lyrics for A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, Mm -hmm. which did well. I'm pretty sure it was 62. I think you're right. And then they decided to do this. (laughs) It was originally titled The Natives Are Restless and then changed to Sideshow. Which? I will never leave you. I will never go go very different kind of music. And you can still find like some promotional um, materials out there yeah. with that sideshow title on it. Yeah. Um, and then it transitioned to the name <laughs> Anyone Can Whistle. Which happened to be the title song of one of the, or the titles of one of the songs. And kind of from that point forward, I think changed the mood of the musical a lot. If you see a musical titled, The Natives Are Restless. Yeah, it definitely, especially in 2021, it definitely brings you to... A certain place. Yeah. A not so politically correct place. Right. But anyone could whistle. A musical about whistling? Whistle down the wind. (laughs) Lawrence refused to give out any details when he announced the show. When Kermit... Bloom Garden came on the board um, as a producer. Lawrence specifically wrote him not to mention money to Sondheim because it would upset him because Sondheim was a a furious genius in the way like Howard Ashman was during like, especially during Disney years. Yeah. Oh, that's so true. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Just that genius of like, don't, 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 don't. (laughs) yes and that was actually very out of character of lawrence to try and cushion the blow because he was a very upfront kind of director which is why people respected him sure but don't you think directing something you also wrote is kind of a bad idea Says the person who's directing the musical she wrote. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, if any of my uh, students are listening, hey guys. Um. Uh, Angela Lansbury signed on. This was her first big role on Broadway as well. Uh, Even though she had a lot of misgivings about the script, she had misgivings about her abilities to sing the score, which, oddly enough, echoes Jason Alexander's sentiments when he did the revival of Forum. We, we mentioned this, I think, in a past podcast as did well. Did we? I think so. They had tryouts in Philadelphia, mm-hmm. March 2nd to March 24th, 1964. And then it opened on April 4th, 
1964. It had 12 previews, nine performances, and that was it. Before Anyone Can Whistle went to Broadway, it uh, premiered in Philadelphia. And when it was in Philadelphia, they definitely had some mishaps, something that they had to work through. Um, but some of the more major problems was that one of the actors had a heart attack during a performance. And then a dancer also caused a heart attack because she flew off of the stage into the pit onto a saxophone player. So it kind of left everyone in panic. So it's not surprising that anyone can wish whistle did not have the best Broadway run. When the show was in its pre-Broadway tryout in Philadelphia, it was the, I think it was March 2nd to the 21st in 1964, but the show had a lot of criticism to begin with. And instead of listening to the criticism and taking it um, and in you know rehearsals before they went to Broadway fixing those problems, they completely ignored them. Um, and the criticism was all about the show's message and how absurd it was and how a lot of audience members wouldn't understand or comprehend it. But instead, he just re restaged it. Yeah. <laughs> he was just like, Lawrence was like, it's so much easier to restage a show than rewrite a show. So yeah. that's what we're going to do. And then it had nine performances. Well, and the other problem was who says no to Arthur Lawrence and Stephen Sondheim? Right. Well, I don't think it helped either that they left Philadelphia, went into rehearsals, went to Broadway, and then other shows opened, like Hello, Dolly, like... Fiddler. Uh, Fiddler, like Funny Girl. And originally, Arthur Lawrence wanted Barbara Streisand to play the role of Faye, mm -hmm. and she said no, so she can be in Funny Girl, which, Barbara, good on you, girl. Yeah. You made a good choice there, but then you have someone like Angela Lansbury, who led the show, playing the mayoress, and she played for nine performances. Now, this was Angela Lansbury's Broadway debut. But I guess you're not going to think something is going to fail with those two names on it, with those writers' names on it. Right. Where could you go wrong? <laughs> and actually, opening night, there were a lot of positive reviews, especially for the music. Yeah, and from the audience as well. Yes. But the New York Times wrote a scathing review, and the show just could not recover from it. I, um... I have a, a, a snippet of the review. Would you like me to read it? Sure, I would love that. It began its review with this statement. There is no law against saying something in a musical, but it's unconstitutional to omit imagination and wit. Yikes. Yikes. The da Daily News uh, called the first act joyously daffy, but didn't like the rest. The... Uh, Journal American actually praised the show and reported that the opening night audience liked the show so much that they cheered in the midst of several numbers. So it definitely had mixed reviews, but yeah. I mean, if you're slammed by the New York Times, you're not getting anywhere. Yeah, that's it. You done, son. I could imagine it's like how Howard Ashman felt after Smile. It's just so odd because you expect, like, when you hear Stephen Sondheim. All of his shows are done around the world and put on, people put on major productions of these shows. I mean, you think of something like West Side Story, Gypsy, mm -hmm. Into the Woods, um, Assassins. All of these shows are 
are, are put on almost every regional theater, every community theater, and then you have a show like Anyone Can Whistle where no one even dares to touch it. Yeah. Let's talk about why. First of all, like you said, it was a three-act show. Who was doing three-act shows? Why? You had too much story, and that in and of itself is a thing. Mm-hmm. It were too many plots. The fact that the show starts, usually within like the first five minutes of the show, you figure out what the problem is that the characters are going to have to overcome during yeah. the show. In the first five minutes, we learn that the town is going bankrupt and everybody hates the mayoress. The fact is, is that they still hate the mayoress at the end of the show. So one of your problems is never solved. And two, the other problem, which is the town going bankrupt, is solved within the next five minutes of the show. So now you need a new plot. For the rest of your two and a half acts. Right. (laughs) Then the cookies, or the mental patients, mix with the town people. So there's your next plot, and they have to unmix them. They have the miracle. They solved it. Then the cookies mix. Okay. So they have to unmix them. But then you introduce a character that is going to take off on a completely different plot line. Uh It's too much. It's It's too much. much. Well, and when you have a show that is making fun of theater and show tunes. And just America in general. And just America in general. You're going to upset the people that are going to see your show. You're alienating your audience. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it is two shows. So you have your satire um, that is breaking the fourth wall. You have narrators in the show. You have the mayoress that is speaking directly to the audience, commenting on the horrible things in the world, and, and poking fun at the audience. And now we have this in Cabaret in 1966... We have this in Pippin in 60, uh, 76 and Chicago in 75. But like you said, in 64, we have Hello, Dolly and Funny Girl and Fiddler. We have escapist theater. Mm-hmm. And this uh, hair is not going on on Broadway. It is downtown. Mm-hmm. People don't want to be told <laughs> that they're wrong and society is to blame for all the problems with the world not when hello dolly is doing gower champion kicks eight right. times a week and it was fun mm-hmm. and fiddler was meaningful and yeah. had a sense of home and tradition while commenting you know the the point of fiddler is that you're teetering between tradition and moving forward and that's a commentary it's not a satire. You're not making fun of the audience. You're saying, audience, we understand where you are in life. And then you had this romantic musical comedy. Does, does it make the love story satirical? Or does it make the show less of a satire by putting the love story in there? I think it hurts it just as much as it helps it. I don't think much of the show does anything but hurt itself. When you look at the songs, even though the music and lyrics were praised, Mm -hmm. when you look at the songs, all of the songs are in two different camps. You have the patachés of musical theater, which is everything that the evil characters sing. You know, your mayoress and even the musical sequence at the end of Act One, Sit Simple. 
I was going to say smile. I just have Howard Ashman on the mind. Um, simple. And then you have this idea of these very Sondheim-esque romantic songs like There Won't Be Trumpets and Anyone Could Whistle that are not in the character of this old Broadway style. No, it's confusing. Yeah. And Sondheim uses this idea of using old musical theater styles in order to show the artificiality of life and theater. So anybody that likes musical the musical theater genre of music is kind of being made fun of. This is definitely the the bravest show Stephen Sondheim wrote mm-hmm. un, until he reached Assassins. Yeah. But he really put himself out on a limb here. And what I think to myself when I think about the show is what inspired them to write this? I mean, it definitely feels like an idea that came from Sondheim. Whenever it has to be. Yeah. All of Sondheim's shows are social commentaries. Right, absolutely. And that's part of why his work is so great. Right. They're almost satirical uh, commentaries. You know, when you look at Into the Woods. I was to say Assassins. Assassins. Almost pointing the finger of why things are wrong in America at the audience. And he yeah. does this. He absolutely does in this. In almost every show. Yes, absolutely. I mean, if you think about it, like in Gypsy, he does that. When we obviously know Mama, Mama Rose is mostly to blame. Right. But, but it doesn't feel that way. No, because remember, he's writing that. He's just writing lyrics. Jules Stein is writing That's the music. And true. Arthur is writing the mm-hmm. book. But when you get to Forum, it's more like his writing in music. But then when you get to Anyone Could Whistle, and when you get to Merrily, and when you get to Into the Woods, and Frogs, and Pacific Overtures, it is, you are commenting that there is something wrong with America and with society. Yeah. But I think, and I don't think that there's anything wrong with having that perspective in theater, but he had so many perspectives that he tried to shove into one show. And then by the end of Act One, literally, I think they had, they had the audience, I was reading that they had the lights from the audience shining, like started, I was reading that they had the lights go into the audience to almost blind the audience. And then, because Hapgood screams out, "You're all, we're all mad, or you're all mad. And the lights go into the audience. And when, they, when the audience is not blinded anymore, the actors are pointing and laughing at the audience. I talk about this all the time with like family and friends who are not necessarily theater people, but come see me in a lot of shows or go with me to see a lot of shows. And they always comment, like, why do you laugh so loudly in the audience when you go and see shows? And I'm always like, well, because audience members always feel embarrassed to, to, to laugh and, and sh- cry or show any emotion or, or feeling about what's going on on stage. So I always try to make a point to like, give them that feedback because, you know, as an actor, we get that the audience feedback is what drives you on oh, stage. Oh, absolutely. You know, it can make or break a performance, which is sad, but also, like, that's the beauty of live theater. And um, I could not imagine what those audience members felt like watching everybody you're supporting on stage, and I put my finger quotation marks up because now you're 
mocking the audience and I don't know it kind of makes me think of those family and friends who I know that won't put themselves out there and laugh loudly even if they think something is hysterical because they're uncomfortable now you're shaming your audience yeah and like you said before like they're alienating them but going back to what you said about um how you know there was like a lot of different plots and characters I feel like he Stephen Sondheim learned from the show once he was writing Company, because that show has a lot of plots and a lot of characters, but he was able to bring them all into one, rather than, I think, realizing like you have one main character who all the different plots revolve around, rather than having a million different characters with a million different plots. I'm going to disagree with you just a little bit that I don't think that company was about different plots. I think that the main plot was that central character of Bobby. Yes. And it, you know, your plot was the exploration of relationships. That's true. I just, I guess with each couple, like it feels like a a small subplot as you went. Absolutely. But again, like maybe that's where he finally learned. Like you can have those subplots in there, but they all kind of have to make sense with that central character. Yeah. I mean, look at Into the Woods. You have so many different fairy tales, but the way that he winds them together is that he focuses on one idea. Yeah. Without a doubt, Into the Woods has to be one of his most famous famous shows to date yeah his most commercial to be sure oh oh absolutely yeah we've been talking about the songs or the show itself being social commentaries i would like to zero in on a few songs and tell me if you agree or disagree or even if you found something else as you were listening to it okay before you do say that though i want to say what i said earlier in the podcast some of these songs are bops yeah like really really good personally my favorite song from the show has to be There Won't Be Trumpets, but the Bernadette Peters version, when they did it at the Carnegie Hall concert, my favorite, yeah. favorite, favorite version. That was 1995. I didn't watch that one. No, um, I just listened to the soundtrack. Sudden, it, it is on the YouTube, by the way. Oh. Yeah, it is sure on the YouTube. It. I watched the City Center because we've talked many a time how I love the City oh, Center. Just love them. City Center, please sponsor us. I know. Uh, with Donna Murphy and Sutton Foster. Actually, as much as I have said that I don't like Sutton Foster's work now, she did a good job with this. And she actually sang this for the uh, Sondheim's 90th birthday stream, Take Me to the World. And don't forget, Raul Esparza. Ra- yes, Raul Esparza. He did a great job, and too. we love him. Oh, of course. We love him. Donna M- Murphy was stellar though but she's donna murphy like do you expect anything less because no, i don't No, she had a choice wig stellar costumes her legs go on for days oh for days miracle song that kind of revitalist song that sounds like it's religious there is no religion in the show about how people blindly follow religious figures and we have this idea of people following religious figures or problems with religion and religious figures from everything from hair in 67, on, on Broadway 67, to Godspell, to um, Superstar in 71. So this, is, this becomes a theme very blatantly later on, and it comes out of the idea that people are going to college more, and they are 
reading more about religion in a collegial setting and more educated about religion. So it definitely, uh, but in 64, it's, it has not taken on yet. The song Simple. With the, co I mean, there's a lot to unpack in that song. Um, but the social commentary on racism, especially at the heights of the civil rights movement, the lyrics that every time, every time get me. The opposite of dark is bright. The opposite of bright is dumb. So anything that's dark is dumb. that but martin who is the black man goes i'm jewish <laughs> and you're like yeah you had mentioned earlier that the cookies are like supposed to be like mental patients but i also had read somewhere that they're supposed to be like the non-conformists yeah and the regular villager actors whatever they are are the conformists right which like well, because we're just getting into the hippie movement in the 1960s. But, like, also you cannot tell if that's what it is. I had to read that to understand. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah. In the show, absolutely. That's That was the idea that the cookies are your hippies, your nonconformists. But while going through this song, Hapgood basically comes up with a way to say the opposite. And you're like, what is going on? And the fact that Hapgood, as a doctor... You find out in Act, I think it's Act 3, that he is a patient himself. Leading into that uh, old adage that all doctors are quacks. It, it almost feels that it was too early in his career for him to be making these bold choices that he, he made. Yeah. But I guess that's the beauty of Sondheim. But at the same time, maybe he shouldn't have done it. I don't know. Not just quacks, but like evil. Like there's a, a line where Hap, Hapgood says, I am not, nor have I ever been a member of the medical profession, which is a line that people used to say in the 1950s to defend themselves against Senator McCarthy. I am not now, nor have I ever been a communist. And you're like, he's, th this is a doctor. So is Sondheim saying that doctors are evil? Or doctors are communists? I mean, probably doctors are evil. But, oh my gosh, all these parallels. And then, you know, obviously this whole thing about how all politicians are corrupt and well, evil. Sorry, I just had a thought. Going back to the doctors thing, another way to offend your audience, I don't know how expensive tickets were in 1964, but knowing how expensive tickets have been you know, in the past couple of years, people who are seeing your shows are the people who make the money, like doctors. So now you're offending not only an audience member for being a theater goer, but now you're offending them for their profession. profession. Yeah. Doctors, politicians, they're going to see your shows. Yeah. Again, I don't know if, you know, back then how much it took to cost and if that was a lot of money. We didn't get $100 shows in the balcony until uh, Miss Saigon in 1990. It's, it's Cameron McIntosh's fault. It's Britain's fault. I would, you know, it's 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 Andrew Lloyd Webber's fault. <laughs> with stage door boxes, we work with um, like 
these two men called the Broadway Husbands, who I might have mentioned. Yes. Yeah. And um, they also have a podcast, The Broadway Husbands. It's awesome. Go listen to it. But they have like um, an apparel line, and they have a T-shirt that says "It's all good." And it's an ALW. Kills me. Kills me. Kills me too. I almost considered buying it, and then I remembered how much I yeah disliked it. Disliked him. <laughs> like we said, this show only had 16 performances. In later years, Sondheim went on to write a musical called Merrily We Roll Along. Oh, this is a fun fact. I'm excited for this one. Uh, I'm going to read you this little uh, snippet that I found. With a delicious sense and irony, Sondheim rewrote history in one scene of his 1981 showbiz musical Merrily We Roll Along. The central character, a Broadway composer named Frank Shepard, gets his first show on Broadway in that same 1964 season. For those of you that don't know, it's basically the, the history of his history, but going backwards in time. He, he Frank and two of his friends. Right. Writing a musical. Right. As he and his friends celebrate their success in the theater lobby with the song, It's a Hit, his producer declares their show was even better than Funny Girl, Fiddler, and Hello, Dolly. Anyone Can Whistle was finally vindicated from their 16 performances, if only fictionally, yet in the ultimate twist of fate. Merrily We Roll Along only ran 16 performances. And in 2021, we call that shade. Sometimes said... F all y'all. And then all y'all said, F you. <laughs> it's kind of like you should have just quit while you're ahead. Uh-huh. Why didn't you just leave well enough alone? I don't like, understand. Just for that comment, Merrily will not flop. <laughs> Nobody likes you anymore. <laughs> not true. Not true at all. No, no, no. But also, please give us a new musical at your old age. I would love to see what you came up with. Final thoughts, Rita. Usually, at the end of the show, we're always like, this show would have done better now or you know this show should have never happened i don't think this show would have done better now and i understand why most theaters don't put it on and it can only be put on at big performance venues like a city center encores or like um like carnegie hall like city hall because it definitely attacks theater people in an odd way that you wouldn't expect it to mm-hmm. um but yeah my final thoughts are I probably would go see a production of this now that I've done so much research on it, and I probably still wouldn't understand what was going on. But I do, like I said, like a lot of the songs in the show, listening to the soundtrack separate from the musical itself is fun. I very much enjoyed listening to Angela Lansbury. I very much enjoyed listening to Bernadette Peters' version of it. So I would say the music is great story. I'll leave it behind. Your final thoughts. I probably would never go see a production of this. Unless I force it. I think that the the biggest problem in this show is that there's so much going on that how do you navigate as a director what to make important? Yeah. And I think that that's probably why there aren't a lot of productions of it. And also why people won't mount it because direct 
pictorial-wise, it is a nightmare. <laughs> Absolutely. And I feel like this show, sorry to interrupt your final thoughts, but, like, if you were to rewrite this show, you would have to rewrite the show. You'd only be able to keep the main plot, which what is the main plot, and then kind of work with the characters you have, but you would have to rewrite the whole thing. Right. It just it doesn't stand up alone. And what is your main plot? Yeah, no, I mean... Can you have one without the other? You know, can you have the story of the insane asylum cookies without Hapgood and Faye? And can you have Hapgood and Faye without... No, because I I just think that... Uh, Unless you made the mayoress a featured character as the villain or, like, the supporting villain, and you made Faye... And and half good and half good yeah but uh, if you made their story the plot the main plot and then had the mayoress be the villain to that plot maybe but that's a stretch yeah no I just don't I think it's really rough to try and and make it work I agree yeah so um I mean maybe if they did it at city center again I would go. I think it would also depend on who's in it. Yeah, I was going to say depending on the cast. But if somebody out here did it at a community theater, I would Oh, absolutely not. not. I would yeah, absolutely maybe I should have made that clear when I say I go see it. I would only <laughs> see it if it was star-studded with a bunch of people that I adore and know would at least give the show something. Mm-hmm. I could never see it in a community theater level. No. Please don't. Please, if you are a community theater director... You won't get it. Yeah, if you're listening to this podcast and you're saying to yourself, you know, I am considering doing Anyone Can Whistle, and you, you, you happen to fall upon our podcast being like, this this could help, why? We're telling you, please don't. Yeah, don't do it. Please don't. We're trying to save you and your actors and your production staff. And your audience. The time, the energy, and the stress. Yeah. The end. The end. <laughs> Well, we hope you all enjoyed today's episode. Um, If you did, make sure you go subscribe, like, and comment. You can find us anywhere podcasts are available. Spotify, Apple Music, Anchor. And please make sure you do subscribe. Tell your friends. We really appreciate it. Make sure you also go and follow us on Instagram. Um, Hopefully soon we'll be posting some different type of content. We've got some fun ideas, so... So we will uh, we will be sure to get to get that up and going. Well, we hope you all have a wonderful rest of your day. Keep belting out those show tunes. Yes. What she said. <laughs> <laughs>